Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 64 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Paulie Walnuts. And I'm joined here by my captivating co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader. I'm talking about how Street's own chameleon could fit in anywhere from the White House to the Trap House, a former nightclub bouncer who's still awaiting his induction into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> I'm talking about the gorilla of House Street, JJ. How's it going, man? Good, brother. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing great, man. Excited for our guest today, a former Barron's Bank derivatives trader, a man who developed a superstar reputation trading the futures market on the Singapore Monetary Exchange, a mistake that resulted into a 20K loss compounded into a $1.3 billion loss resulting in the collapse of one Britain's oldest bank. Our guest today has proved his resiliency though. He wrote a book on his experience and got it turned into a film. He now consults for firms raising risk awareness around human behavior, culture, conduct, and corporate governance issues. Of course, I'm talking about the rogue trader, Nick Leeson. Nick, how's it going, man? Going very well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, we appreciate you joining us, Nick. Uh, you know, uh, we want to have you on to kind of talk to, you know, obviously your experiences, some of the events going on this year in 2021, some of uh, maybe the lack of risk uh, management going on. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you, uh, I've seen researching that you were the GM for Galway United uh, Football Club from 05 to 11. How does Rogue Trader become a GM uh, for, <laughs> uh, for a football club? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, um, I, I moved to Ireland in 2003, um, not for any other reason than uh, I, I met my current wife. So I've been here for 18 years or so now. So I wasn't, I wasn't trying to to run away or anything like that. And then. You know, I'm sort of sat in the west coast of Ireland. There's no futures exchanges around here. There's not a great deal of trading. So <laughs> you kind of try and work out what you want to do. And I've always I've always been really fortunate in the, the jobs that I've done in my life, which probably number two or three, um, I've always really enjoyed. And they've been something that I've been interested in. So financial markets back in the time when I was in Singapore and and then the only other thing that's really stayed with me from a young age to now is soccer, as you would call it, or, or <laughs> football, football, as I would call it. So, um, you know, looking for a job around Galway or something to get interested in, you know, the only real option was was soccer. And um, it wouldn't be, you know, it'd be, it'd be very much the poor relation in this country. Um, there's... You've, you've got Gaelic sports and you've got rugby that would come ahead of, uh, of football. Mm. So it was testing, um, but it was enjoyable. And, it, you know, you're meeting the players, you're, you're dealing with the players on a daily basis. And, you know, you have to deal with the fans every now and again when the results aren't going too well. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> you, it, but, you know, it's, um, it's not like managing Manchester City or Arsenal or Manchester United. Right. It's, on a, it's on a much lower scale than that. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Ne neat experience. Uh, just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys would like to join JJ, myself, and a supportive community of traders, you join us at microefutures.com. Uh, Nick, before, you know, the, the big blow up, uh, you developed for yourself a good reputation, a great reputation, uh, really, that really got to let you get away with hiding the losses for as long as you did. Um, before that happened, I want to ask you, what was the lifestyle like during those early days in Singapore? You're making money. Uh, you're an expat. Uh, yeah. yeah, what was that? Well, look, it's it's not as wild as you would expect, right? The, um, I mean, the first thing was I, I'd worked in Hong Kong and Indonesia for a while for bearings, and I, I'd worked in Japan for Morgan Stanley. So I'd, I'd, I'd been around, and I was, I was still only 25. So I was 25 when I moved to Singapore. So for, for me at that age, what I craved more than anything else was the opportunity. So... When the opportunity came up at, uh, at the age of 25 to move to Singapore, I actually took a pay cut because I wanted the opportunity more than I wanted the money. And, and the way that I viewed Asia at the time um, was that if you wanted to be noticed, it was far better to be a big fish in a small pond than vice versa, which 
you know, you, you can imagine would be going on in the US or in the UK at that time at different levels. But if you wanted to make a name for yourself, being out in Asia or South America was one way to do it because you'd get noticed quicker. You'd get noticed quicker by the more senior people within the organization for, for decisions that you were taking. So, you know, when I first moved to Singapore, I, and for your viewers who know the area, I wasn't living on Orchard Road and, you know, living, living, living in the nicest penthouse on, on, on Orchard Road. I was, I was living in Bukit Timah, which is a nice area, but it was okay. out by the race course. It was, yeah. you know, it was half an hour out of the city centre. You didn't really see financial uh, or, or, or people from the broken industry, expats living out in that area. You, you, you'd certainly see expats, um, but they wouldn't normally be from the market. So, um, and then it was a case of, you know, making a name for myself. And, and by the end of it, I was living fairly close to Orchard Road. Orchard Road. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wasn't on it, but I was fairly close to it. Um, but yeah, no, look, it's a great lifestyle. You've all got, you know, you've got swimming pools. You've got it, completely different to the UK where it's freezing cold and you're getting on the train at five o'clock in the morning to be at your desk for six o'clock. Singapore has lots of advantages, but... You know, I was newly married, um, so it was so it was good, and it looked like the travel and everything else around it was was really enjoyable. But um, but it was making a name for for myself was, you know, the main reason why I, why I went there. Absolutely, it's oh, good. Sorry, I just uh, a buddy of mine was in Singapore for ten years. His his electric bill was like five grand a month just to run the air conditioning, you know, and he was, he was on Orchard Road because he was a big wig at RIM. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just amazing how expensive it is to live there. Um, you know, any, any tax haven. So, but uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting how, how you started out. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't even, I'm trying to think when I first went there, when I, when I took the pay cut, did I actually have a, a housing allowance? I probably did, but it would have been, it would have been something small. And let's, we're talking about, I, I don't know, the best part of 25, 30 years ago now. So, mm. you know, my housing allowance at the beginning um, might've been a couple of thousand Singaporean by the end, it was 8,000 Singaporean. And that was the distance or maybe, maybe that's US or pounds, but it was, um, you know, that was a difference between living out on Bukit Dima and, and living on Orchard Road, which was expensive. Mm -hmm. Now, Nick, when you went out there, uh, speaking to like the trading atmosphere, this this was a new market, correct? It, it kind of had a bit of a Wild West atmosphere to it, didn't it? Uh, well, look, I mean, Indonesia did when I, when I lived in Indonesia. Indonesia was a dangerous place. We had a you know, we had a bodyguard and uh, his name was Tino and he carried a gun and, and, and he'd come everywhere with us. So he'd pick us up from the hotel in the morning, he'd deliver us to the office um, and then he'd pick us up and, and, and take us back. And I, I was in Indonesia for, for about 15, 15 months all told. Um, Singapore's nothing like that, but um, from a market perspective, it was, it was still quite new. Uh, the Singapore International Monetary Exchange they only really had one good product, which was the euro dollar. So, you know, in order to make it 24 hours, people would be trading it on the CME, Cymex, and, uh, and possibly in the UK at that time. Um, but yeah, that was the only product they had. Um, the, the Nikkei 225 had, had started, or Nikkei 225 futures started traded, trading just before I went there, but the volumes were low. Um, there wasn't a great deal of open interest. So if you were going to, you know, and that was what people used to look at. I, I don't know how much they look at it these days, but if you if you had no open interest and you had no volume, nobody was going to go there. So, you know, I was a bit of a, as much as I um, <clears throat> benefited throughout that period, I was also a godsend for the exchange because volume went from 2,000 contracts a day up to 30,000 contracts a day. And, you know, I was a large part of that for a while. And, you know, with with my good trading and with my illegal trading as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and Nick, before, uh, I mean, this whole fiasco started with, uh, you know, just a, a 20K mistake. And, uh, you know, with the type of money that you guys were dealing with, that's nothing that wasn't uh, recoverable. And, and a mistake that I would imagine wouldn't happen nowadays uh, as well with the electronic trading. Could you just tell us about that, that first mistake that eventually compounded? 
Yeah, I, well, look, you, yeah, you, I mean, you, you hope it doesn't happen these days, but, you know, through, through speaking to people who work in banks, there's, you know, there's always trades that go wrong. There's always errors that need to be, um, need to be corrected. You would imagine that it's, a, it's done a lot quicker these days. It was an open outcry market. As you as you would find in Chicago, um, and um, you know everything was done by paper, so it, it was a case of you know you write your trade out, you give the slip to your runner, the runner runs back to the to the PC, inputs the details, and hopefully that matches the other person, the other side of the trade. Uh, what happened in Singapore at the time was that they that they weren't ready for the increase in volume. So there weren't enough people, there weren't enough people looking after the exchange floor, the settlement system, the clearing system wasn't ready for this big surge in volume. And so um, what happened in that sort of 92 to 93 period was the Japanese market was collapsing. Uh, there were circuit breakers kicking in, in in Japan. So you would find that the market wouldn't open in Japan or wouldn't open for maybe five or six hours of the trading day, and all of the volume would shift to Singapore. So there was this huge increase in volume and, and no infrastructure to deal with it. So, um, you know, you went from matching a trade within 30 minutes, which is the, the norm, um, to, to often taking 12 to 14 hours to match those trades because the settlement system would be down. And it was often three or four o'clock in the morning that you realized um, that you had a problem. And so one of the girls who was very, very new to bearings at the time, we'd only just recruited her. She had to pick up the phone one day. It wasn't what she was supposed to do, but the orders were coming in thick and fast. She hand signaled the wrong way to the, to the floor. And so it was about four o'clock in the morning that we realized we had an error. And then, yeah, you know, you can't do anything with it at four o'clock in the morning. So, um, you know, you're supposed to refer it up the line. I, I kind of, I went some of the way in doing that, but, you know, it was a very different, um, it was a very different time, you know, I, I think, and, and JJ will probably, uh, will probably confirm this, you know, back in the 90s, um, we, we were all great at celebrating success and, and talking about success, but exactly. nobody spoke about failure, you know. Like, exactly. It, it wasn't something you showed. You well, know, our, go on. Exactly. Our head trader would, uh, I mean, uh, the head trader of our firm would hide bad trades because, see, in Vancouver, we had 13 day settlement, yeah. right? Um, and so he would hide trades under his, his, blotter, his blotter, you know, uh, his desk blotter. And, uh, you know, we'd always be trying to look for trades. And that was before ACT was invented with U.S. market makers. So the trade reconciliation girl would be going nuts trying to find these trades, you know, like Knight Capital's calling out, you know, we sold them 2000 shares of Microsoft. Where the hell's the ticket? You know, and everything was paper. And so people would hide trades all the time. People would stuff trades in other traders inventories or in house inventories, and they wouldn't be found out until uh quarter end, you know, when they did the audit. Um, and it's actually because of you that I saved our firm a massive, massive debt, which would have spiraled into millions because they made a Forex mistake on a arbitrage trade between a U.S. and Canadian uh, exchange. Right. And, um, you know, they were hiding this thing for a couple of weeks and I started, I saw it ballooning and I said, hey, look, man, I just watched Road Trader. You, you guys can't do this. This is not going to go well, right? This is not going to go well. And I've, I've used you at least three times to keep firms out of capital, you know, losses. They should be thanking me and thanking you. Um, you know, but, you know, brokerage firm owners are like pimps. They don't, you know, they don't really, we're just, you know, they use us until we're done. And then you know, they take half our earnings. And when you take a loss, you get the whole loss, right? So, you know, it's, it's, I've always referred to brokerage firm owners as pimps. And uh, so they, yeah, it, it, I, it's because of you that, that, that firm, we probably would have ended up with a 15 to $17 million loss that right. ballooned out of maybe 30 grand, just the same way, you know, uh, the trader who made the mistake didn't want to own it and just kept putting that trade in different inventories, <laughs> you know, it's quite amazing. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and I think that's the thing that people don't realize um, that, like, Nick, this was a common practice, right? Like, you weren't the only one who was hiding money, correct, in uh, other accounts. Yeah, I, I just went bigger and longer than most, <laughs> than, than most people, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it's, um, and I don't, I, I, don't, I don't totally mean that in a frivolous way, but, but you're right, you, you know, like we're all human beings and, um, you know, we're all influenced by what we see and what we hear. So, you know, like me as a young guy starting out in the city at the age of 18, um, I, I worked for Coots and Company, which is the Queen's okay. Bank and looks after the royal family's money. So I worked for them for a couple of years. It's more of a retail, high-end retail banking operation. I then worked for Morgan Stanley, which was, you know, a, a quite... Uh, tightly knit, well-run operation. And then, you know, Bearings was completely different. Um, at, at Bearings, on a daily basis, you would see people put trades in their accounts. They might stay there for a day. They might stay there for a week. They might be even longer. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of, when it came to my, when I found myself in a situation where I had a trade that I didn't really want, and yet you're going through, through the thought process, and we're all you know, everybody who works in banking is intelligent, you know, and they might be, they might not have a lot of common sense, but, you know, academically, <laughs> academically, they're good. And um, you know what the process is, you know how you're supposed to refer it up the line, but still it's a dilemma, right? Because, exactly. you know, you, you're going back 30, 30 years or so, and it, it, you, you didn't show weakness, you know, everything... Exactly. If you wanted to survive, you had to be strong. You had to be stronger than anybody else. You didn't have to step on people, but you had to be strong. And mm -hmm. you know, you, you probably had to give the, you know, give the um, the impression that you would step on people, but you didn't have to do it. And it was, you know, you just didn't sh show weakness. And for me, you know, I was twenty five years of age. I, um, you know, I looked at. Um, you know, telling people what was going on as a sign of weakness, whereas I should really have seen it as a sign of trying to do things correctly uh, and, you know, told everybody up the chain what, what had happened. Now, the girl who made the mistake, she might have lost her job. That was the thing, that, that was the personal dilemma for me uh, and, and was probably, you know, it was probably the overarching reason, but not the sole reason why, why I didn't refer it up. And then all of a sudden, once you cross that line, you um, you know you're you're part of the problem, and you're you know you're more associated with the issue than um, than you were at the beginning, and you know then it starts to mushroom out of control. Um, you know you might be lucky, and day day two, day three, you get all of the losses back, but then it's you know you, then then things have happened to you psychologically. Like for me. I think the first losses went into the trading account in, you know, maybe July or August um, 1992. May of 1993, uh, the loss had been up to $20 million. I managed to get it all back. I had the most perfect expiry in the options, in the, in the May options, and, and genuinely went home that weekend thinking my life can start again. Yeah. But... The, the problem is because you haven't got a, a properly run organization, you know, I'm all of the losses are going into the five eights account. If the order fillers make a, make a mistake, I just hoover that up. It's a catch all account. So there's no, oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, no losses are being, uh, no, no losses are being recognized anywhere. And so you go home from, for, uh, and that yeah. creates a behavior and a framework that's just, you know, that, that, that's just wrong. And, <laughs> Uh, and then you, you know, you go home that weekend, you've got this 20 million back, you've, you, you're actually in profit. So you book yeah. that off to somebody else. And then you arrive back on Monday morning. And as much as you've got the losses back, nothing else changes. Exactly. So, so the order fillers make mistakes, you put them back into the five eights account. And then you're, you know, and then from, from that situation in May, 1993, it just gets more and more out of control. You know, I get more and more out of control. It's in terms of the way that I'm living my life and and, and surviving. And it is a it is just survival. And, and and what happens to you personally? The more that you you know, somebody isn't telling you that something's wrong, that they're not doing the checks, they're not challenging 
what you're doing, you, you start to believe you've got more time to correct the situation. Um, exactly. However forlorn that may look, right? You well, still think, you, you know, you look for this tiny positive. Positive piece of light. Maybe, yeah, that you, you, you yeah. know, there's a, even if there's this slightest glimmer. Exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah. We've all been there. And the, the reason, another thing that we did because of you is we instituted a rule as soon as a trader got himself into trouble, we take that trade away from him and give it to somebody else who's not emotionally connected with it. Yeah. Um, and that saved us a lot of money. And that's directly because of, you know, because of you, um, you know, because once you start digging that hole, yeah, man, it goes from a shovel to a backhoe to a, you know, cat D8. And your next thing you know, you're in, you know, the Grand Canyon, you know. And it, yeah. because those trade errors, they, they never work out to your favor. I mean, that's just the like Murphy's law or whatever it is, but they never, like, you never get a trade error where you make 10 million bucks. That's just, <laughs> you never see that. Right. No, I need, I need one, but yeah. you, know, you, you, never, you never see them. You never see them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think JJ kind of goes to, um, we were talking uh, yesterday, Nick, with a, uh, a mental game coach for traders, um, high performance athletes, et cetera. And I thought he put it well, JJ, when he was saying that uh, trying to dig yourself out of losses or uh, things of that nature, when you're, you know, emotionally charged, it shuts down higher brain functioning. Um, and, and so it's like that, that wish, that hope that, uh, oh, we can make it back, et cetera, et cetera. And I know Nick, that you've studied psychology and human behavior uh, maybe like in an academic sense, uh, where do you think maybe you went wrong in like, uh, yeah, like, you know, psychology terms, maybe mentally or human behavior? I, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily, I, I probably don't think about it in those terms. I, mm -hmm. you know, like I've, I do a lot of after dinner speaking and talking at conferences and stuff like that. I, I and, you know, I, I, I view everything quite, um, quite non-academically, if you like. It's just mm -hmm. trying to look and understand, you know, like I, uh, I wouldn't say, say that I'm a highly intelligent individual, but, um, you know, I'm an intelligent person. And it's about, you know, I think the one thing that prison really, um, really did for me, because I was in prison in Singapore for four and a half years, is you, you kind of have to have a really long, hard look at yourself. And, you know, I spent four and a half years writing a diary, you know, a page a day about things that were triggering memories in me and you're trying to work out why you did certain things. Um, I, I look, fear of failure um, was the biggest thing for me. You know, I was somebody that from a very young age enjoyed success in everything that I did, be that sport or be that academics uh, within school. Um, and I was always pushed you know, my mother always wanted me to achieve more than she did, have a more stable life and, you know, better career prospects. So I was always very, very success driven. It wasn't money driven. You know, money comes with it. Um, but the success was the key for me. And, you know, always. I, I never had a situation where I couldn't go to the next stage. So I had a very exalted opinion of what success looked like. It was very much being at the top of the organization, making the big decisions. And I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, and, and with that huge desire and need for success, there was a, a massive fear of failure. You know, failure wasn't something that I did. I hadn't encountered it. Uh, we didn't speak about it. Um, and that was just the environment that, that I was working within at that time. I mean, you know, like, and, and, and there were many US market makers that I, I don't know if we had any Canadian ones, CRT where uh, Chicago Research and Trading were down in Singapore at the time. And you can imagine, you know, you market closed, you go down to Boat Key for a few beers and they'd all be telling you about these wonderful trades that they had during the day. Nobody tells you about the shit ones that go wrong. You know, and there's plenty of those as well. But oh, you know, God, like it, it. it was always that one-upmanship. You know, if you had made mm -hmm. fifty, if you had made fifty grand off of a trade, rest assured, somebody had made fifty-two or fifty-five. <laughs> you know, complete and utter, utter BS. But that, exactly, that's, that's the environment, and it is. You you know, it's just I, I don't know. It's like those stories that you see. You know. 
my dad does this. Well, my dad does this. Exactly. That's, that's that's what it was like. I know. Yeah, it was just uh, we, you know, we got yeah, we we had we had a lot of that too, you know, uh, because it was just yeah, it's it's true. And then it's funny though when uh, other people um, when the whole market is bad, then that game becomes I lost this much. Oh, really? I lost this much, you know, and it's. <laughs> You think you had a bad day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's not. There's. There's not too many who speak about their bad days. I don't think there's always. You know, like if it was a bad day, it's always the story about how you rescued it or how you were. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I saw it coming. I saw it coming. Really. <laughs> yeah. I told you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next. Um, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, since you brought up the, uh, you know, the prison time, I, I like the quote. I was, I was reading some of the blog on your website. Um, and one of the quotes you had, um, you know, regarding the prison time, the, the only thing that got me through those dark days was empowering myself with information and becoming less ignorant and a part of the process of recovering rather than blindly accepting what I was told. Um, yeah. Yeah. You just want to expand on that? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I had cancer whilst I was in uh, prison as well. So, you know, like they call me lucky for, for a reason. Um, so I was diagnosed with cancer of, uh, of the colon. So I had an emergency operation whilst I was in prison in Singapore. I also had six months of chemotherapy. Um, and like prison, like I'm sure none of you have been to prison. And if you have, you don't need to confess to it on live on air. But the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, we can say that I have, and I'm alone in that. But you know, it's it's not uh, it's not an environment where you're really going to benefit from um, unless you are really prepared to have a long, hard look at yourself. So, you know, everybody and and me up until that point, you know, lived a. Uh, a very fast-paced life, very much foot on the accelerator, trying to do everything, and not really, you know, taking any time to look back at what I wanted to achieve or what I would prefer to be doing. And so prison afforded me that opportunity. So it wasn't just about looking at what went wrong from a business perspective, you know, my home life, um, other situations that I found myself in, and, and really being honest about it. So you you know, you have to pull back the veneer, um, really look inside at yourself, come to the conclusion, uh, as I did during that time, that you don't particularly like what you've become and, and then seek to change uh, from that point. Uh, but without that um, reconciliation, if you like, without that real um, fairly fairly aggressive look at what you had become, that, that that's difficult to do. So, you know, I as I've mentioned already, I, in, in working or speaking on the speaking circuit, you do come across some of the other rogue traders that are out there. Um, and, you know, some of them blame the banks, they blame different things for uh, reasons for what happened to them. And I, I just don't think they've been through that process because, you know, as much as the bank are at fault because their systems of control, uh, systems and controls are weak. They're not. They weren't good enough. It's it's you taking the trades and you doing the the things that are wrong. Um, where some of that statement comes from that you 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 read is obviously when I was diagnosed with cancer, um, I was very ignorant to uh, and and had no idea about what that meant or what I would be facing. So, you know, I I found that. Um, you're in a situation and I think people find this in the world of banking you know you go in and see your bank manager and a lot of people are overwhelmed by that situation I think medicine is another area where you quite easily get overwhelmed and so um, you know I, I was for a while I was just a, a you know very much a passive recipient of what the doctor was telling me and then I read a, a couple of books that a friend of mine in Singapore sent into the prison for me. One of them was Chicken Soup for the Surviving Soul. So, you know, with some stories about people who'd survived cancer once or, or, or many times and had survived and gone on and, and done other things. So that, that, that gives you hope um, moving forward. And then the second book was everything you need to know about uh, colon cancer, a kind of dummy's guide, if you like. But 
with that and, and, and gaining more information and knowledge rather than being a passive recipient of what the oncologist was telling me, you know, I could challenge him, I can ask him questions and, and you, you feel like you're more of the process. And I think that's psychologically, that is hugely beneficial when you're going through um, a, a difficult situation. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think I think people could say, well, you know, whatever they like, Nick, about you. I, I think if anything, it, it's admirable your resi resiliency. Um, I, I couldn't even imagine the the type of um, anxiety you had to feel. I mean, as a white guy going into an Asian prison, um, that had to been difficult dealing with cancer. So I, I just think your resiliency very admirable. Yeah, I, look, I, it's. I think. Uh, I think. Unfortunately, I think everybody's. Uh, Everybody's images of prison are, are tempered by some of the TV programs you guys throw out. But the uh, no, it wasn't. Look, it was tough, right? It was a maximum security prison. You can't move more than ten feet by than hitting a uh, hitting a door or, or a guard. Um, very, very strictly controlled. Um, CCTV cameras everywhere. Um, Gurkhas patrolling the walls with guns that shoot on sight. Um, I'd never, ever heard of anybody attempting an escape or even considering how they were <laughs> going to do it. It was, you know, but it was, for me, the, the, the one thing that you have to do in an Asian prison is understand the concept of face. So you have to give face to, to people, to other prisoners. And, and that's really just being respectful and, and, and understanding the hierarchy and, and, and the strange thing, and I, this, would be, this would probably be my last prison story for you, but the strange thing for me, you know, if you can imagine, everybody is a triad gang member. Um, they're all a lot smaller than me. Um, so I wasn't physically worried and there weren't really weapons and stuff like that. It, it, you know, very rarely did you see anything that would constitute a weapon. But so you have the generals who, who, who run the triad gangs, the leaders, um, and there'd be maybe seven different gangs in the in in the prison. And but the thing was that because of my crime, because it was so um, you know it was in, in every newspaper story that mm -hmm. you see, the prisoners knew who I was. So yeah. they thought I'd stole two billion dollars. Exactly. So I was this uber criminal. Right. Right. And so oh, yeah. I was. Uh, so Doctor Evil. I, exactly. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if Dr. Evil was appropriate, but uh, no, but I was I was elevated to general level. Right. You know? So it was so it was weird. You know, like I, I often when I when I go around and I'm talking about things, you know, the um, uh, one of the um, I was in South Africa many years ago and, and I, I was at a board meeting for a bank there and, and the risk managers were just quizzing me about different things and one of the questions was what was my biggest attribute that enabled me to get where I got within the world of banking? And I hadn't really thought about it before, but the honest was the, the honest answer is that, you know, I was very socially adept. So I can handle myself in most situations and prison was no different. So I wasn't going to contradict the idea that I'd, I was this uber criminal um, <laughs> because it was keeping me safe. Exactly. You know, so, so why contradict it? Why, you know, have to explain to, you know, 300 yeah. inmates a day that that's not the way you'd get fed up with the explanation as well. So you might as well roll with it a little bit and, um, and, and allow it to give you, you know, a status yeah. in prison that, that enabled you to, you know, just coast along, which mm -hmm. is what it did to be, to be honest. So it's that's tough. interesting that the, it's interesting that, that no one came up to you and said, well, you know, you've got 800 million squirreled away in the Caymans. Um, you know, yeah, they, I, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think they would have known where you squirrel it away. But the, at that uh, time, but, but now <laughs> I, I've, uh, you know, being a trader in Vancouver, I've traded for pretty much every mobster alive <laughs> and, uh, from, you know, every single continent and, uh, yeah, now they're completely much more adept with offshore institutions. I'll tell you that right now. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I remember reading, um, Nick, uh, I guess Bernie Madoff, they, they viewed him the, the same way in prison. He said he was like so revered by the other inmates uh, just because of the dollar amount. I, I guess well, exactly. Yeah, the dollar was, amount. And they're yeah. like, 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's all it is. That's yeah. all they see. You know, they like they, they, there's a dollar amount, and you know, they they don't understand the story. Yeah. You know, in in, in Singapore. Um, in, in Singapore, it was slightly, it was possibly even more weird because, you know, you, you have probably five um, Chinese triad gangs. Um, the level of education and literacy amongst those individuals is quite, quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you couldn't even have a conversation with them. They were, you know, they spoke their dialect. Um, but they wouldn't. Uh, they would have had very, very little English. Um, so they just left you alone. Nobody, you know, prison's no different to anywhere else. Nobody wants to highlight their ignorance or mm-hmm. lack of understanding. Um, and I think, you know, Madoff probably found himself in a situation similar to that. Uh, and and as you as you said, it was the only thing they see is the dollar the amount. Dollar. They don't understand why, but they right. see a, You know, they understand dollars. Yeah. Except when Canadian when Canadian stock promoters go to jail, they end up doing deals while they are in jail. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like one guy I know, I mean, they put him away for eight years and he managed to sock away about 160 million offshore doing a couple (laughs) of bump and dumps. And as soon as he got out, he booked it to Dubai, you know, and now he's (laughs) taking pictures of himself and posting them on Instagram as a wanted guy and they can't get a hold of him. So, (laughs) you know, that's, that's the Canadian way. (laughs) No, look, I, you used to during my time in Asia, you'd see some pictures of, you know, people who were in prison in Indonesia, for instance, and they'd be related to, you know, one of the ruling parties. It wasn't really prison. Singapore is definitely prison. You're locked up. <laughs> you're locked up for 23 hours a day. Um, you know, the the walls are. Uh, you know, there's three people to a cell. It's nine foot by six foot, so there's not a great oh, okay. deal of room. You, you know, there's a hole in the floor uh, where you where you go to the toilet. Um, the walls are pristine white. There's there's no writing on the walls. There's corporal punishment. Oh, so okay. if you if you do anything wrong, they um, you know every Friday there is um, you know somebody uh, you, you can get the rotan. So you're you're tied to a wooden tress. Um, you know, you're stripped, so, so you have a, a, a leather uh, a leather band around your liver and kidney area, um, and and then somebody with the biggest arms in the prison will hit you with a hundred strands of of bamboo. And mm-hmm. you know, during that time, there was actually one American uh, American kid. I think he was 16, uh, who was caught for uh, vandalizing a car, and so he spent six months in prison. And, and he was he was given uh, or he was um, he was a judge to be given six strokes of the rotan, but um, President Clinton intervened, and I think it was oh, wow. it was reduced to four. Um, but he did spend he, he did spend six months in prison. Now it, it completely lacerates your yeah. backside. There's yeah. blood everywhere, and you know the only way that the guys can cauterize it and stop the bleeding is by sitting directly onto the hot floor. Mm. Wow. So it's not like Goodfellows where uh, Polly Walnuts is making gravy and slicing <laughs> no. garlic. No. And, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. No, even for, even, even for the guys who've um, supposedly stolen $2 billion. No, it's nothing no. like that. We used yeah. to get, you used to get one good plate of food a year. So you used to have to choose what your religious festival, and I'm not religious mm. at all. So I used to get, so on Christmas Day, I would get fried rice as opposed to plain rice. Plain rice, so okay. <laughs> okay, good, good, good stuff. Well, moving on. Uh, <laughs> Nick, Nick, how well did the movie uh, Road Trader portray reality? It's uh, it's a strange one, really. I've I've only ever watched it twice, to be to be honest with you. I watched it once when I returned from Singapore. I watched it with, with Sir David Frost, who who made the movie. His production company made the movie, okay. and uh, and there was um, I'm trying to think of the other guy's name who was there. The guy who played Gandhi in the movie. What's his what's his surname? Ben. Oh. Can't think of his name at the moment. Oh, uh, Ben. Oh, yeah. Um, ben Kingsley, is it? Ben Kingsley, yeah. Yeah, so the two of them had a showing of the movie in Ladbroke Grove in London. So there was about 50 of my friends came up on a bus from uh, from where I would have lived, about 30 miles outside of the city. Um, 
and, and you know, some people were laughing, some people were crying. I was having a few beers with Sir David Frost, which was surreal anyway. I, I don't remember all of it. Um, I think that, you know, there's lots of parts that are exaggerated. There's lots of parts that are dumbed down so, um, so that a very general audience can understand it. Um, there are parts that, that, that ring true and, and there are parts that are, are completely fanciful. Um, you know, I think the uh, and one part that people often refer to me at the end of the movie, I, I'm fleeing Singapore in a beat up old car. And, um, you know, like I, I drove to the airport in the Mercedes that I had in Singapore. And, you know, so, so you know, if it's if it's not um, not even a close refre reflection, it doesn't it, it just doesn't stay with me. I, I, and I. The second time I watched it was with my current wife. And, um, you know, again, I, I'm sure that like my youngest son is 16 and a half now. I'm sure he'll want to watch it at some point. And um, yeah, I, it's a weird one, right? I, I, I don't know. It must even be weird for you and McGregor because not often do you pay, you know, do you have to portray people who are still alive? Uh, yeah. You know, normally movies are many years later. Yeah, I, I feel it, it would be um, weird having a movie about yourself, Nick, right? But uh, a movie about uh, an infamous event in, in a painful time uh, in your life, right? It, it's cool to have a movie, but at the same time, it's about that. I mean, how, how are your feelings on that? Yeah, it doesn't really bother me, to be honest. It's kind of, you know, you have to embrace the whole situation in order for you to move on. So... You know, when you stand up on a stage in front of people and you, you, you're telling a story, you, you know, you either tell the truth or, or you don't. And I think if you if you don't tell the truth and if you're making stuff up, um, it's it, people will see through you really quickly and it, and it will come across as the as the fake event that it is. So, you know, I always try to be completely honest um, completely real about everything and so the movie's a part of that you know whether it's whether it's a true adaptation or not it, it's there and and that sort of stuff doesn't really bother me you know it probably affects my wife and children more than it does me mm -hmm. and and that for that reason it, it can be an issue but for me personally I, you know I remember once I was on a radio program many years ago for, for a guy called James Whale, who's a, who's a bit of a shock jock in, in, in the UK, lovely fella. And we still talk to this day, but I was on his program late at night one time. And um, one of the viewers phoned in and, uh, and said, Nick, I've, um, I've just bought your mum and dad's old house. Should I, big, should I dig up the garden? you know, suggesting that that's where I buried the money. But, you know, like it comes with the territory, right? If you, you, you know, I don't mind. I might be out for a drink or something with my wife or going for something to eat in town. And, you know, you know, somebody might have a, you know, a few digs about something and that's okay. I'll let them get away with two, maybe three, but the fourth one, they're going to get one back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of, there's, time, there's a time and a place, right? So if I'm at an event and I'm talking and, and people want to ask me questions and, and even if somebody wants to have a dig, that's fine, right? That goes with the territory. I'm getting paid for speaking. I don't mind. If I'm out for dinner with my wife and you want to have a pop at me, you know, like I'll let you get away with it once or twice, but you know, three times a charm and you're going to get some back. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Nick, have you come across any other uh, traders during that time period? I, I think back, Jane, I was just thinking we, we had on um, Nick, his name's Jason Shapiro. He was actually profiled in the new market wizards booked by right. Jack Schwager. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he said he profited off of this event. He brought you up. Um, that once this <laughs> that once this came to light, I guess once it started hitting uh, like the newspapers and stuff, I, I forget exactly Jay how he said, but once the news came out, he said that the trade was so obvious for him. I, I forget long or short, whatever it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. Have you ever talked to any other tra uh, traders that maybe profited or were just like uh, what their perspective was during this time? Yeah, not really. I mean, there were lots of rumors circulating the market probably from about December. 94 through to February uh, 95 when the bank collapsed. So it's really strange just in the last few weeks, 
um, since I've been a bit more active on social media, there's a few people, you know, that, that were in Singapore at the time making contact. So it, it's a really weird, you know, it's 25 years later or whatever. So there was a guy who used to run Goldman's um, he, in Singapore. He's, uh, and Goldman's offloaded the positions. So, you know, as they often do when something like this goes, goes on. So, <laughs> So yeah, look, the trade I think was was quite. Everybody knew what the positions were. They were coming to the market. They were going to hit bids, um, you know, in terms of the unwinding that, that that needed to be done or lift offers if there were any uh, any long positions that needed to go. Um, so you could, you know, you could certainly um, skew the prices that you were that you were looking for. So I would imagine it would have been a, it would have been an easy trade, but. Uh, yeah, some of the market makers that that I knew from the time, or I've not spoken to in 25 years, uh, you know, have made contact in the last few weeks. Uh, and uh, you know, one of them was in, uh, one of them's in New York. Um, another one's in Chicago, um, working with one of the exchanges down there. So, you know, life goes on, and you know, I, like I don't have any anger or any resentment. It was. You know, everything at that time that led to my demise was of my own doing. Um, and you know, you kind of, as long as you can accept that and take that on the yeah. chin, you can you can move forward. It's you know, st- as soon as you start blaming people and getting angry, yeah. you, you're just going to be bitter and twisted for the rest of your life. You know, there's, there there is really no point to to, to that sort of um, route or, or choices um, for you True going enough. forward. Yeah, and and back in the old days too. I mean, the way we used to say it is, you know during the daytime during market hours you'd cut each other's eyes out for an eighth right yeah. but when 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 your girlfriend kicks you out of the house at night you know one of the boys will take you in and let you sleep on the couch <laughs> yeah, right no. that's the way it was right we yeah. you know there was you know during market hours you know we were there to rip each other's throats out yeah like and, it was uh, it, it was yeah. a, it, it was a very different time like i, yeah. I remember i remember one of my best friends who, who still is one of my best friends to this day when he was working on life there used to be a 500 pound fine for striking somebody in the pit he, <laughs> he, he used to prepay the fine oh yeah so he would go and pay the 500 before he hit the fella Exactly, and give him him fair warning. But you know, like it was a it was a different time. Exactly. (laughs) How many times have I walked into a room with a baseball bat? You know, (laughs) I mean, I it's just one of those things. You catch somebody shorting one of your clients' deals, and you got to go give them a little, (laughs) you know, thump. You know. Oh, it's awesome. I, I, I love I love these stories. The, the, the millennials don't do that stuff, I don't know. No, <laughs> they just text an angry what, face. What, what are they called now? Generation Z or something? I don't know. Gen, I, don't, Gen uh, Z, I, I don't can't know. keep up with the alphabet, but oh, yeah. I guess I think you just text one of those sour face emoji things, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or an aubergine or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Hey, I just found out phone was not simple, you know? <laughs> Great. I love, no, I, I love the 90s trading stories. <laughs> Nick, Nick, you um, so you consult with firms. Um, this year, you know, we, we've seen a few blow ups from uh, hedge funds. I mean, I, I think I read JJ now, like Bill Huang, it's up to like 20 billion. They're saying, uh, yeah. he lost, um, you know, who, who <laughs> banks are taking a hit. Uh, Melvin Capital got squeezed out of existence. You know, Nick, what have been your thoughts and your reactions to uh, to these financial events going on? Yeah, it's, I, like um, I, I don't look at any of them in too in too much detail, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I, I think this Robin Hood stuff is, um, you know, it has been wild um, uh, for most people. It's certainly something new and, and something for the markets to get to get used to. The the real, um, I mean, retail traders have always been there, but the, just the the way that they've, uh, you know, they've got together to to squeeze some of these positions higher has has been something that's never been seen before. You know, the force and the veracity of it has been oh, yeah. uh, has has been unbelievable. And and fair play to them. Um, you know, I do worry um, that you know a short squeeze is one of the uh, you know they've probably gone to a from letter A to letter S or T in the. Uh, in, in, in the learning to trade um, vocabulary 
a little bit too quickly, and, and I worry, I do worry that there's some downside coming. Um, you know, brokers and banks will adapt, and they'll be, you know, they're, they're forewarned a little bit now. Um, so I think people should be careful going forward. But I think it's great, you know, like the, um, you know, the more retail gets involved, the better information that they have, the, the fairer the game becomes. Um, you know, like I, when, when I was working on trading floors years ago, we would be ticking prices to trigger stops. And, mm -hmm. you know, it can be unsavory. And um, <laughs> the, um, you well, know, I, so I think the transparency now is great. Yeah, yeah, Nick, yeah. Nick you're, you're talking uh, to uh, JJ. You're talking to one of the most unsavory. Yeah, I was known as the director of Dirty Tricks. Um, here's like you know, stop runs were my breakfast. Um, you know, we got to eat, right? Um, let me ask your your take on something. I have a theory of why these blowups are big these days, and I think it's because these firms are now public, and the people who run them aren't partners who have their own money and skin in the game. Yeah. Like when Goldman was 60, 60 really savage old men, um, you know, and it was a partnership, uh, they would watch the bottom line every night and they wouldn't let some employee go nuts uh, yeah. because it, no. was, it was their own money. Now it's other people's money. It's OPM. And yeah. these guys are like, oh, I still get paid my bonus. It doesn't really matter, you know, or they... They, they just, they don't have as much skin in the game. So their risk is like, yeah, we lose 2 billion. It doesn't really hurt me, you know? Yeah, I think there's look, there's a huge part of that. I, I think, you know, I, I joined or I started work in the city um, around 1985. So 1987 was the Big Bang era. Uh, and in the UK, that was the end of, or, or the start of the end of stockbrokers, um, which mm. was the way that, you know, everybody had a had skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right, it, it becomes other people's money. I think the other the other real thing is that it's become such a big industry, just looking back at how the city changed over that period as well. You, you, you get a lot of people who get paid a lot of money for doing not a great deal uh, in the exactly. con, in, in the control functions. And you know, you're not going to get the same sort of money in another industry. So these people get into a situation where they don't want to challenge. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to ask the difficult questions. And it's far easier to pick up your paycheck at the end of the month and let somebody else make the noises. You know, why, why show, uh, you know, why much show myself out with, within the organization? And if you you know, if you think of all the whistleblowers that you know over over the years, you and, and I know it's a little bit different now because there's big payouts for for the, for the whistleblowers. But if you go back over the last 20, 30 years and you, you ask yourself, where where's that whistleblower now? You know, they're definitely not working in the world of banking, and um, you know they're probably finding it quite difficult to get by. Mm -hmm. Nick, what do you what do you what, what do you find a difference because with you consulting the firms what do you find a difference from you know your time in the 90s you know maybe with uh i don't know if com compliance risk management etc how's it changed from the 90s to now i uh, look there's a huge change it's it's far better now you know the quality of people in those roles is um you know, the number of people in those roles has increased significantly i mean if you if you walk into the Citibank in the in, in the city of London, there's 3,000 people in compliance. Now, I've no idea what the 3,000 people in compliance are doing, um, but there are, you know, there's, you know, banking, if it has a problem or it has an issue, it, they tend to throw numbers at it. Uh, and the number of people is, is has massively increased. The education, uh, the, uh, the level of professional um, accreditation within the industry has, in, uh, has increased uh, hugely. But, you know, common sense probably isn't on the up too much. You know, there's a, you know, there's a lot there from an academic perspective, but you really need to know how the organization fits together, how it all works and, you know, work out the way that you can, um, that you can challenge what's going on within the organization. You know, I wasn't challenged and you still see that occur from time to time. Um, and, you know, it is about really understanding what's going on um, within the organization. I think, 
the Wall Street Journal, when, when I'm talking about things, the Wall Street Journal years ago used to have a, um, a phrase which, which I use and I think uh, you know, sums up a lot of what went on at Bearings at that time. And the phrase is, knowledge is nothing without understanding. If you don't understand the business, you can't challenge the business and you know, the business is therefore at risk. Bearings was uh, you know, staffed by people who went to the best schools, they went to the best universities, but they really didn't understand the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, Bearings was just as complicit as yourself and that, that whole blow up, right? Because there's, there's no way you should have been able to get away with that for as long as you did, correct? No, no. I mean, if you, like, if you just look at the numbers, the capital base of Barron's Bank was 250 million pounds. By the end of 1994, I had 600 million pounds with me in Singapore funding my illegal position. So more than twice the capital base of the bank. The legal limit you can lend to a subsidiary is 20% of the bank's capital. So we're 10 times in breach of that. We're, we're, the bank in London are reporting that to the Bank of England every single day. Uh, I think the Board of Banking Supervision Report, if you, anybody cares to read it, there is, um, you know, the, the guy who's looking after that particular statistic at the Bank of England, because it's breached every single day for over two and a half years, um, they, uh, they specifically asked him, why hadn't you done anything about it? And his answer, and this is on the report, is that it was too far down in his in-tray and he hadn't got around to it yet. Hmm. So it's not just the bank, it's the regulators. Right. This was, a, for me, this was systemic, you know. Lots of people not very good at their jobs, including me at that time in that particular phase of what I was doing. And, and nobody, can, uh, uh, nobody can detract from that. It's, uh, you know, I don't see, I, I, I always come across people from bearings on, on my talks around the world. Um, uh, you don't come across too many of the senior management because it will highlight, you know, their lack of knowledge and understanding at that time. Right, right. And I thought, I thought, Nick, that was something the movie did portray well, that it wasn't just it wasn't just you, right? The regulators, uh, the banks uh, incompetency as well. Uh, so I thought that was at least highlighted. At sure, least. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick I think I think a few of the senior guys were quite ridiculed by, you know, they weren't quite that bad. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Nick, um, do you have any participation um, in the uh, the markets right now? I, I trade every day. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, nice. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I still um, I, I trade the indices. I, I trade the Dow and the DAX, and I trade gold. Uh, oh, cool. I, I don't really I, I don't really go outside of those. Um, you know, I like a bit of volatility. Uh, if you don't have volatility, you're not going to make money. No. Um, and um, you know, I tend to trade around the opening bell. So I'll trade the European opening bell and the New York opening bell. And then, you know, I don't want to, I'm not somebody who's looking for a particular trend. It's just, you know, I'm looking for patterns around the open. Um, you know, I think of, you know, my time on the trading floors and the opening orders that come into markets. And I, you know, I look for patterns around those. It's, it, it's tougher now with all of the programs that are out there, but, Mm -hmm. You know, some t I, I believe, you know, programs tend to trigger at the same time of the day. And, you know, the first eight minutes of the, um, of the opening of the Dow does provide opportunity. If you get it right, you could be completely wrong. And, but after eight minutes, I'm out. Yeah. Exactly. That's trading. <laughs> I'm yeah. not holding I'm not holding it anymore. Yeah, I'm yeah, wrong. So, uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. As one of the ladies in our room says, hit it and quit it. Yeah. In and out. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Nick, Nick, it's a uh, it's a little different though, huh? Trading uh, as, as a retail trader, an individual account, as opposed to uh, with, with the bank's money. How was the you know, or or is there was there a difference in your opinion? Yeah, look, the size is different. <laughs> yeah. Can't cheat. Yeah, the size is different. There's no point hiding anything. I still hide stuff from my wife from time to time, but the just uh, for old times' sake. <laughs> no, just because because she'll kill me. But the uh, and she's a tougher risk manager than any anyone I've seen in the past. Compliance. <laughs> yeah, but no, look, no, it's yeah. Look, the 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 monetary size is different. Um, you. you 
the way that I traded years ago, um, you know, it would have been, um, there would have been longer horizons on the trade. So, you know, now it is, um, you know, it's very much a day trade. It's to, you know, I might do five or six trades around the opening bell, uh, Europe side, probably only one or two around the US. I'm re I, I genuinely am only looking at that first eight minutes of trading really. Um, and, and then, you know, like if, and JJ will tell you this, you, you know, you can walk into however right you are and, and however well researched you are and however much your technical analysis is telling you to do something. If you walk into a big trade from JP Morgan, you're just going to get flattened regardless. Exactly. You know, like I, I remember on the trading pits in, in the trading pits years ago, everybody would be watching what JP Morgan were doing. And if they walk into the pit with a big order, you know, they're just going to, you know, they're going to go through bid after bid after bid. And then when oh, they yeah. stop, after they stop, the market will go back to where it was. So yeah. let, them, let them do yeah. their business and then let them look to trade. So I, I'm not somebody who trades around numbers or, yeah. or, or does anything like that. You know, going back to the things that I'm looking for, I want some volatility. I'm 54 years of age, right? So... <laughs> I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to sit in front of a screen for ten hours trying to work out when the moon is going coincide with this <laughs> technical analysis and that technical analysis. That's you know. I, I don't have is the, in retrograde. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't have. I don't have the time for that. I've got dogs that need walking. You know, I've, got, I've got to go and get my pension from the uh, from the post yeah. office, and you know. And, and here's a tip for compliance. You know, we used to bribe our compliance officers, so. Maybe once in a while, you know, a little trip to Louis Vuitton or something like that will help your compliance. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now, look, when are the markets going to move, right? That's the question I ask myself, right? So I can guarantee you every day the market will move at the open in Europe and it will move at the open in the US. So if I just, if I focus on those times of day, I'll get enough volatility in that period to hopefully make money. If I get it wrong, I get it wrong, right? But there's going to be enough movement to make a profit and, you know, be content. No doubt. Nick, appreciate your time. I got two, two more questions, miscellaneous type of questions, and we'll wrap this up. Do uh, you have any thoughts and just general takes on cryptocurrency? Yeah, I don't understand it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I have a bot that trades the cryptos for me. I don't have a big, I don't have a big account. It's a really small account, but I think in the last seven days, I was up 25% down. And then I went from a positive 25% uh, account to a, a negative 21% account. And it's now up 3%. If there'd been cryptocurrencies when I was at Bearings, the bank would have lasted a day. <laughs> That stuff is bonkers, right? It is. <laughs> it's absolute bonkers. How do you manage the downside? It's great when it's trending. How do you? How do people manage the downside? I posted a comment on social media a few uh, about ten days ago about uh, you know Bitcoin being twenty percent down, and somebody responded to me and said, "Hey, dude, don't worry until it's down sixty percent." You know, who wants to wake up on a Monday morning and their account's down 60% over the weekend? That's, that's, that's not trading. That's not investing. That is, for me, I, I don't even know if it's that. It's going, yeah. into, it's going into a casino in Las Vegas and putting every coin that you have into a slot machine and hoping something comes out. I don't know. Exactly. I don't know what it is. It's bonkers. It really it is. is bonkers. Not how we were trained. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. Uh, if you're looking for, that's how probably how I would have traded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. And the last one. Yeah, last one. Um, I saw too. You were uh, uh, on Celebrity Big Brother. I was, yeah. In, in the UK, 2018. What was your experience like on reality TV? Uh, look, it was it was a job. I got paid really well for it. Um, and uh, I expected to be the first one out. Um, I was the only one with a criminal record. Um, and, and I'm sure I've, you know, I've upset a few people along the way. So I, I genuinely was expecting to be the first person out, but I made it to the final. Uh, I came fourth. So Kirsty Alley uh, from Cheers was in it at the time. She came, I think Kirsty came second. Uh, and uh, so yeah, look, 
for me, it was a three, four week return to jail. Um, and, uh, you know, with some nicer inmates than the last time I went to jail, <laughs> better food and a, and a nice pay packet at the end of it. You know, I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything from my four and a half years in prison in Singapore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome, Nick. Well, that will conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys like the episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join JJ and myself and a supportive community of traders, we trade futures, equities, options, crypto, NFTs, all at a high level. Come join us at microefutures.com. Nick, let the listeners know where they can find you. Anything else you want them to know? Oh, I, I don't know where they can find me. I, uh, look, I do, I do have a Twitter account. I do have a uh, an Instagram account. What else do I have? I, I, I have a LinkedIn account. I, you can find me there. Ask me what, what my names are on them. I don't know. I'm the original road trader on one. I'm sure it's just by my name on the others. But yeah, look, uh, happy to talk to people about anything, really. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, make sure you guys go out, buy his books. Watch the movie if you like, JJ, any, any part words? Thank you so much. Um, you know, actually, you know, uh, I, I grew up in your story really uh, changed the lives of a lot of people that I worked with. So it's, uh, it's amazing meeting you. And, and uh, thank you for being so forthright about your journey because, yep. you know, everyone, you know, it's easy to get the story from the guy who makes money and flies around in a helicopter and owns football clubs and stuff. But uh, when people come back from, you know, as uh, our friend Fingers says, you know, they come back from, you know, from that depth of of emptiness, you know, the darkness or what does he call it? From the the abyss. The abyss, abyss, you know, Uh, it's, uh, it's good to see because trading is tough. Sometimes you're looking in the mirror going, Jesus Christ, what the hell am I doing? And it's nice to see someone, you know, they've been through the worst. They've come back out the other side. And uh, it, it's, I, I think that's, for me, those stories are inspiring, um, you know, and thank you very much for that. No problem, guys. Take care. Absolutely. Bye. I echo that. And so for the Rogue Trader, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. Make sure you guys use the stop zone. So.